Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. This podcast is intended for entertainment and opinion. Nothing discussed is meant to be a substitute for mental health treatment. If you are experiencing a mental health crisis, please call 988 or use the resources listed in the episode description. To see the sources and other resources mentioned in this episode, you can visit psychologicallymindedpod.com. To contact me with any questions or comments about this topic or upcoming topics, email me at psychmindedpod at gmail.com. And finally, please rate and review this show on Apple Podcasts and subscribe wherever you listen to get new episodes as they post. Enjoy this episode! Hello, and welcome to Psychologically Minded. I'm your host, Grace Valor, and today I am talking about Stranger Things again. Uh, If you haven't listened to part one, that episode came out uh, a few days ago, and it's more about the individual characters and some psychological processes going on there. This episode is a little more philosophical, a little more about big picture ideas and culture. Um, So I I figured I'd break them up, seem like a natural point to kind of break them up um, to have the topics separate. This one is is going to be a little bit more broad and you know please feel free to go back and listen to part 1. I reference it a few times in this episode. Uh so it's it's good to have in mind as always spoilers for season 4. Uh I don't think there's any content warnings for this episode or this part of the episode, but there are massive massive spoilers for pretty much every season of Stranger Things. So, if you haven't watched and you wanted to spoiler free, uh pause this episode now. All right. So let's talk about some of the more broad imagery or messages in the show that um, come up, especially in season four. So I'm going to talk about two main things here. Uh, I'm going to talk about nostalgia and geek culture. And then I'm going to talk about gender because I love to talk about gender. <laughs> um, so I'm, and these things are mixed. They, they, they overlap. Um, but I'm hoping that the way that I, I have it explained out will make it clear how they um, relate to each other and how they, they are different. Kicking it off with nostalgia and geek culture. So again, if you haven't watched any Stranger Things, one of the main things you need to know is that every episode, every line, every like visual reference is a reference to some sort of nostalgia culture. Most specifically to the 1980s and 1970s, but there's other references to uh, like cult TV shows and movies in the uh, 90s and maybe early 2000s. But the show is set in the 1980s, so it makes sense that the nostalgia focuses on the 1980s. One of the like main ways that this shows up, the nostalgia and specifically for nostalgia for geek culture shows up, is that each season is laid out over a Dungeons and Dragons plot where the kids have a like D&D campaign that they're playing as friends and then the villains that they're fighting kind of matches the campaign that they're going through. 
this is also why all of the villains are named after things in D&D. So the Demogorgons are the monsters that come from the Upside Down. That's a name from D&D. Vecna, the villain in season four. The Mind Flayer, the villain in season three. All of those are named after Dungeons and Dragons characters. Now, full disclaimer, I'm not a D&D person. I don't think I have the patience for it. Um, it's it's a lot. It looks like a lot of work. Um, but I do have friends that play it and it's, I think, becoming a little bit more mainstream. So it's a little more understandable now than it would have been in like the 1980s. Um, but I think that this like story structure of each season is just such a callback to this specific type of nostalgic geek culture and a time when there wasn't as much ways to access nerd or geek culture. It was like you either had your like friends that would buy D&D manuals or you could like go to the arcade. But we didn't have the internet in the same way that made geek culture accessible. And so I think the nostalgia for the 1980s is like a little more pure or a little more explicit because it's not as diffused across the internet. Like, even as we start to get into the 1990s, like, geek culture moves to the internet, like, as quickly as possible. And so the 1980s are kind of, like, the last bastion of culture that was accessible (laughs) and was understandable by a large group of people because we hadn't shifted to these, like, niche online communities. As I mentioned before, I used these articles from uh, Millette, which were looking at this idea of hyper-postmodernism. And so hyper-postmodernism is this idea that the media we are consuming is not a text in itself, but is contains so many references to other things that the sheer amount of references themselves become a new text. So I, I know it's a, little, it's a little confusing, but it's like this idea that media has become so self-referential to the past that it ends up creating its own new thing even though it is a like recycling of old things. And postmodernism is like this idea of referencing the past, especially when we talk about media, it's this idea of referencing the past. But hyper-postmodernism is like doing that so much that the experience of enjoying the media becomes about identifying the references rather than identifying like the story. So like if we're using Stranger Things as an example, it's about pointing out the Easter eggs of all the things you find in the show of like references to oh Ghostbusters or Dungeons and Dragons or Dig Dug or um, even music like the the Kate Bush song that became like a meme in after season four dropped. All of those references to media become the experience of watching the show more so than watching the show. The references become two things more so than other TV shows. Like if you're watching uh what's a good show that does a lot of re- I mean I guess like it's like if you watch it's always sunny in Philadelphia they do a lot of references to like other shows or t- other movies like a uh, lethal weapon right is off- often referenced in that show but they they typically tend to stick like to visual media it's like they're re- referencing movies or or tv shows stranger things in this like hyper postmodernism movement is referencing everything ev- everything all types of media it's referencing Movies, TV shows, music, video games, books. Um, there's like Stephen King references. There's, you know, a tabletop gaming. All of these things are mentioned. So, so many references that it just becomes this like soup of references rather than like a, a story on its own. And I think one of the clearest examples of this is if you go to YouTube 
and search like Stranger Things season four, you're going to find like literally a hundred videos that that are in all caps, like 10 Easter eggs you missed in Stranger Things, like 11 things you would never have guessed were referenced in Stranger Things. Like it's everywhere. It's impossible to find any other video about Stranger Things on YouTube right now. And so it's like the experience of Stranger Things has become about how many things can you identify? How many other references can you identify? And that isn't a crux what hyper postmodernism is about. Now, in this article that I was reading by Millette, they mentioned that this era of hyper postmodernism really seemed to kick off in like the 2010s with the resurgence of these like nostalgia based films. So if you remember, uh, if you remember the film Super 8, I think that came out in 2011. That I think that is like the marker of this era of modern filmmakers making nostalgia films about the 80s and more specifically like about being a boy in the 80s. Um, Super 8, great movie. I love Super 8. I think it's really cute from what I remember. I saw it in theaters. I remember really liking it. But it's all about like these boys in the 80s like having a Steven Spielberg adventure and it's like based on the movies that Steven Spielberg made in the 80s. It's all referential to that and to like Spielberg's work. Um, And then like Guardians of the Galaxy, like Marvel even started to get on this bandwagon of like having these movies that solely served to reference past things. And so they bring in this audience that is like nostalgic for a certain time. Now, Millett mentions that this also happened a lot with like cult TV shows in the 90s referencing the 80s, like Buffy the Vampire Slayer or Scream are references to 80s teen like slasher or horror films. Um, But those tended to be more like cult movies or shows, whereas in the 2010s, we saw these like blockbuster mainstream films beginning to do this self-referential thing to the the 1980s. And again, like I said, specifically to the 80s, which in my conceptualization is the like last era in which there was mainstream culture in, in a way where like a lot of people could access it at the same time. And as we move into the 90s and particularly the early 2000s, culture starts to sh- fracture into these like communities where that are siloed, right? That there there's like no communication and it's impossible to make a reference that hits all of those communities at the same time rather than like a mainstream reference that hits everyone. I also a side note, I think the Simpsons is a good example of this is like if you've ever watched old Simpsons episodes, some of the the references you're like, I I don't know what this is, <laughs> I like I don't I don't get it. But if you were in the audience watching that episode in 1993 when it came out, most people would get the reference because it was to something else happening in the larger world that everyone would have seen because we only had so much channels to watch. <laughs> but as you get into like New Simpsons, which everyone hates New Simpsons, right? No, like most people will tell you they won't watch past like season 10, 11, 12, whatever. New Simpsons is I think less enjoyable because there's no longer big references we all enjoy. If The Simpsons makes a reference to like Ariana Grande and Pete Davidson breaking up, only like a few people, a few communities are going to get that because that was largely like a Twitter joke <laughs> was like their breakup. Same thing for and, and it's hard to cut cross generational. Right. So I think that's why New Simpsons is less enjoyable for people because the references aren't as broad and not as many people can enjoy them at the same time because we have now like fractured culture into these like little sub communities or subcultures. Like I said, Millette 
posits that this kind of it's not just Millet, but the theories that that Millet is citing kind of posits this hyper postmodernism is starting to ramp up in like the 2010s. And the reason why Stranger Things relies on this hyper postmodernism is so that in an attempt to reference as many things as possible and to collapse the like 1980s background in with modern adolescent themes is an attempt to get lots of people to watch it, right? Because you want that the 1980s background is supposed to be for people who were children in the 1980s, so like our Gen Xers. They're supposed to want to watch it for the nostalgia. And then the inclusion of like modern day themes is for like the 18 to 24 audience, right? Of like they are supposed to want to watch it to relate to what it's like to be going through adolescence and even like younger kids. But when you mash the setting with the themes plus all of the just crazy amount of references, you get something that's like unidentifiable. (laughs) And I've heard this criticism from people a lot about they say Stranger Things is for kids because the main characters are kids. But it really isn't. Like if you if you watch more than 30 seconds of it, you realize it's not for kids. It seems to be for adults and maybe for teens. And especially as you move past season one, the adult storylines start to take up more space. And by the time I get to season four, there's quite a a stratification between the different age groups. So there is an adult storyline that follows like Joyce and Hopper. There is a older adolescent storyline that follows Steve, Robin, and Nancy, and sometimes Jonathan. And then there is a younger adolescent or child storyline that follows the, the four main boys and Eleven. And as we move towards season four, they've they've tried to mix it up. And there have been like different groupings, like sometimes the adults are there. You know, Steve had his story arc where he was like the dad of the four boys. There was like age mixing there. But season four then starts to separate it out to the point where the adults are in Russia for the almost the entire season while the kids are are in the U.S. So they've geographically separated um, the age groups as well. All that to say, like, that's the the criticism you hear a lot is like, well, this this is a show for kids. Why are all these adults watching it? Well, the adults are watching it because it's referencing to their childhood. It has all these, like, cultural icons that are familiar and recognizable. And because it's a hyper postmodern piece of work, it becomes, like, exciting. The experience of picking out the references is what keeps people interested. And then younger people are supposed to be pulled in by like, oh, I can relate to these stories. I've also heard the the criticism from younger people of like, Stranger Things is not for me. It's for grownups because I don't get the, the references. And so I think in this attempt to make a show that is mainstream in the era of internet subcultures, it becomes such a mishmash that it's hard for people to relate to it. And there may be some of you who saw that the episode was called Stranger Things and you were like, no, that's not for me, right? I'm not I'm not interested in that. So I think it's like hit the or it's missed the mark a little bit. Um, and I personally argue that hyper postmodernism is driven by the ever increasing demand for consumption. So like consuming media in our culture paired with the ever narrowing niche communities on the internet as we move into this like deeper stage of late stage capitalism. So This like exponential demand to like consume more, to be on top of everything, paired with the fact that there are now probably hundreds of thousands of internet communities that have their own references, that they have their own memes and ideas of what should be referenced and what should be like archived. Um, It's impossible to make something that cuts across all of those. It begins to feel like so much pressure on the individual to consume and understand all of those references. So like, you know, for example, if you 
don't have a Twitter or a TikTok account, there's a lot of stuff that you've probably missed out on. And even if you do have a TikTok account and you have a different like algorithm for your For You page than your friend, there's like so many references that you're going to miss out on. And you may have started to experience this of like, you know, maybe someone like quote something they saw on TikTok and you're like, I have no idea what that is. <laughs> I, I am on the same app as you and I have absolutely no idea what that means. This happened a lot during Vine as well. Like there were people who were very into Vine when it was alive and knew all of the references and still make them and like expect people to know the reference. And if you weren't on Vine, you you don't know them. I've experienced that as being someone who wasn't on Vine. There, there are references that like I just don't get because I wasn't on it. It's not as relevant now because it's been like a decade since that app went under, but the experience is the same, I think, for people who like aren't on TikTok or aren't on Twitter. Even if you're like a few hours late to something on Twitter, like there was a day where I like went on my Twitter to, you know, just check it out, see what was going on. And all these brands were just like tweeting out one word, like Amtrak just tweeted out trains. And it was like all these accounts were tweeting out like one word that kind of like described their brand. And I was like, I missed something. I definitely missed something because I don't get this. And then I saw like parodies of it by, you know, accounts that were not brand accounts that were just like people. And I was like, I don't I don't know what this means. I mean, it is a little bit funny that Amtrak just tweeted out the word trains because that's what they do. They do trains. Uh, but I'm missing something. I'm missing part of the reference. So we're now this this like demand for consumption makes our media move so fast that if you don't have an app, you're not in a community or you're even like a few hours behind a community, you miss out on the joke. And this pressure becomes to be online all the time to like keep up to be a part of the joke because we want to be part of the in crowd. And I I know that there is a lot of reasons for why people develop like addictive behaviors toward the internet or social media use. And a lot of that has to do with like the uh, uh, dopamine models of addiction and how you get rewarded for getting a like on something. Um, but I think that this this like social pull to be a part of the in group and be connected and know all the know all the inside references also contributes to the pull of being on social media all the time of I need to know what's going on so that I'm not left out. And that's a very isolating feeling. We 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 feel really siloed. And I think that's why a lot of our media goes back to these eras like the 80s when there was a mainstream culture that wasn't siloed across internet communities. Like where there's now so many 80s nostalgia shows that even if you like weren't not even a dream of being alive in the 80s, you get the references now because we've like gone back and referenced them so much that they've become current references, right? Like even things like Ghostbusters or I'm trying to think of like other 80s. Like the, the, I think the Kate Bush song is a great example, right? Like Previous to Stranger Things, season four coming out, I had never heard that song before. I'm sure there are many millennials who had never heard that, many younger millennials who had never heard that song. But my older millennials and my Gen Xers, you guys knew that song. And many of you loved that song before it was ever on Stranger Things. And then Stranger Things comes out and now millennials and some Gen Zers are like, this song slaps. And the Gen Xers are like, we know, we've been trying to tell you that this song slaps. For decades, it became something that we could all understand. And if you saw a uh, like a video with the Kate Bush song running up that hill on it, or if you saw like a meme that had the lyrics on it, then we all couldn't engage in that for like a moment and understand it. 
But if you didn't watch Stranger Things and then you go online and all of a sudden you see all these like running up that hill memes, you're like, what did I miss? Where did that come from? (laughs) And so although it is like it has become a more mainstream reference or a reference that we can all get, it's still exclusionary. People are still left out of it. And this exclusionary thing leads into my next point about like nerd culture in general is that although Stranger Things is trying to make nerd culture kind of like this like accessible like way to uh, build community of to find your place, nerd culture has long, long, long excluded many groups, specifically women and people of color. And Stranger Things themselves got that criticism after season one, where the only girl or like only main girl character was Eleven. And the only um, main character of color was Lucas. And, you know, there's obviously there's other there were other characters who were women or people of color that were like on the periphery. But if we're talking about like, you know, the core group that the show is, you know, supposed to be about, it's a lot of white people and it's mostly men, cis men at that. And this is what the the other Millette article, the uh, masculinity and geek culture article is all about is this idea that if we if we follow the trajectory of original geek culture which really blew up in the 80s we see that this came about during a time of of hyper masculinity so come back in time with me in the 50s 60s 70s we had well really the 60s and 70s we had these big movements of second wave feminism right this was about uh, the Equal Rights Amendment agitation. This was about movements to get women access to birth control, the ability to get a credit card without a man's signature. All of these like feminist movements um, really bore out in the 60s and 70s. And as we rolled into the 80s, there was a backlash, a political like uh, pendulum swing to the other side of a very hyper- masculine and expansion of neocon political movements. So moving from the dominant political movement or not the dominant, but the maybe loudest (laughs) political moment movements being led by women for women about rights for women moved to the dominant political discourse being neoconservative, hard, hard line, like economic and prison policies. So like the trickle down economics comes out in the 80s. The prison boom really takes off in the 80s. This is when uh, the war on crime and the war on drugs really kicks off. And we see this like very neoconservative authoritarian political movement as a like reactionary movement to feminism and other civil rights movements in the 60s and 70s. So geek culture then develops in the 1980s as well as a space for men who did not fit into traditional hypermasculinity spaces. So if you think of if you think of the 80s and like I think of the Gordon Gecko I am greed or greed is good. I'm greed. Greed is good like that movie. I think of that as like stereotypical like masculinity in the 80s. It was all about making as much money as possible, having the nicest things, literally being the guy from American Psycho minus all the murder, right? It was about your look had to be masculine, your profession had to be masculine, and you were maximizing profit, essentially, in everything that you did. And so geek culture was a place for men who didn't fit into that to find their community. And that is exactly what's represented in Stranger Things, right? These these boys who don't fit in with the other boys at school, they find their, their community through the AV club, through Dungeons and Dragons, through the arcade. In real life, geek culture excluded women for the most part. And 
that still happens today, right? There are jokes about gamer girls, like girls who are fake into video games to try to like sneak into gamer culture. Gamergate is a great example of this, of geek culture being a place for men who are seeking refuge from the hypermasculine dominant culture and then in turn turning their communities into hypermasculine spaces as well of of hypermasculine in a way that like is accessible for them. So it's kind of like like if we have multiple tiers of masculine of toxic masculinity, mainstream culture is like the top tier and geek culture is the bottom or not the bottom but like a lower level tier. Um, that it's trying to emulate the top tier as much as possible. And that means excluding women, excluding people of color, excluding uh, specifically like excluding gay and trans people, like not letting anyone into the community that would damage the attempt to be hypermasculine. And so Stranger Things got this criticism after season one, where it was like mostly boys and white people. And so they included Max in season two and Lucas's sister starts to take on a bigger role in later seasons as well, because then you get a double whammy with her. She's She's black and she's a girl. But they, um, when they were brought in, they they had a much more stereotypical presentation until several seasons in when they get to develop more, whereas the boys got to be developed from the beginning. And Millette also talks about how the girls in the show uh, often serve to highlight a growth point for the men in the show, particularly the girls who are not main characters from the beginning. So Max serves a, a purpose to like teach the boys how to like be less judgmental about girls. Uh, Robin serves to teach Steve a lot of lessons about personal development and to challenge assumptions about you know women's sexuality. Uh, and she also she serves. I think mostly as a foil for Steve to like develop into a, a, a better person to be worthy of Nancy again. But that's, that's another issue. Um, Lucas's sister exists to one of the reasons why women, men of color, people of color in general were excluded from these movements was that geek culture developed to tie uh, media and competition to masculinity. And Millette highlights this as the the development of an arcade, a video game arcade, as the ultimate definition of like this attempt at hypermasculinity in a subculture, and that young men could gather at the arcade and compete against each other in like a vicious competition of you know Street Fighter or or whatever arcade game was, um, and they didn't have to be kind of like traditionally athletic to compete with each other, right? You don't you don't have to be particularly good at running or lifting to participate in competition at an arcade you can you you just have to like be able to use your fingers (laughs) like your fine motor skills which you know some people don't have the ability to do that so I guess there is some exclusionary but it's a lot more accessible and the the competition is it it serves the same vehicle as like maybe like sports would if we're in the more mainstream masculinity right of like the boys get to compete against each other for like victory, like having your name up on the the scoreboard and even, you know, rally around like icons in the community, right? Of like if, if someone is particularly good at the competition, you know, people start to rally around who they want to be at the top of the scoreboard, essentially the same way you would rally around like a sports team or your favorite player on a team. So on one hand, geek culture, nerd culture made masculinity more accessible to young men who would have been left out of the traditional definition or the hyper masculinity of the 1980s, but it did so at the exclusion of others. And so geek culture becomes a way for 
the men who are excluded from traditional masculinity to then exclude people from their group, right? To exclude women or, or other people from the nerd culture, essentially in the same way that I talked about how we seek to take control over people the way that we have been controlled, right? Then geeks, the nerds feel that they have been excluded from a group. And so to take back that sense of power, they exclude others from their group. And that's where you end up with comments like, you're not a real gamer, or you're a gamer girl, or you are like black people being left out of certain spaces or not being invited into like tabletop role-playing spaces in the same way that that white people are. And I know that that has started to change, um, but I think that Stranger Things, because it is set in the 80s, is trying to walk this line of, you know, paying homage and referencing the origins of nerd culture that were coming out of the 1980s, but also combating the hyper-masculinity of it and trying to uh, allow people who traditionally would not have been let into geek culture to to be in it. And so in, in a way starts to like rewrite or attempts to rewrite history that I think may fall flat for people who lived through that, right? Who may have been a young person of color or a, or a woman or a feminine presenting person in the 1980s and had been excluded from any of these cultures and it falls flat for them. I say all of this just to understand why geek culture or nerd culture can appear to be so toxic. And because I think this will come up in future episodes that I do as well. So it's good to lay it out now. It's kind of the foundation for it. But that in an attempt to make a space that is inclusive of people who have been excluded from other places, it is easy to then become exclusionary. Essentially, the uh, oppressed becoming the oppressors. And and not to make it too dramatic because it's just like nerds running around. But when your your subculture's roots come from this like this attempt to reclaim some type of hypermasculinity, I think it better explains why it can be so hard for some people to break in. So if you are someone who has experienced this exclusion or kind of the fallout of the hypermasculinity that can be inherent to nerd culture, I hope this gives you a better understanding of like why that happens. So this rolls nicely into the the last point I'm going to make um, about Stranger Things more broadly is about gender and how gender is kind of constructed or portrayed in this show. And so obviously in the beginning, in season one, the main uh, group is set up to be the four boys, Will, Mike. Dustin and Lucas, although Will is going to be shortly captured and taken to the Upside Down. Uh, and then they they meet Eleven. And Eleven, when they meet her, is, I would say, genderless. I mean, she identifies as a girl, but she does not have a gender identity in the same way that the boys do and that she hasn't, like, constructed how she's going to perform or express her gender and she does not have the uh markers of like a feminine gender that they would be used to at this time from peers of theirs that are that are feminine or femme presenting you know if you think about when they first meet 11 she her head is shaved she's in like a lab gown and she is she's quite frail uh and pale but she doesn't have any she's never really had to like dress herself she's always just worn this like it's not a lab coat it's like a hospital gown that's what it is she's she's always worn the same thing and always had this like shaved head and so the boys as they you know meet her and try to help her like acclimate to society and to school they start to dress her in very feminine clothing and they change her name so they put her in a pink dress a blonde wig 
Many of you probably saw this in the Halloween costume, uh, especially when the show first came out. It's like this pink waffly dress and this like just tacky looking blonde wig. And Mike actually begins to call her L, which not L as in the, the letter, but L like E-L-L-E. He feminizes her name. And Mike specifically engages in this because he's like romantically interested in her. Uh, I know they're like 12 years old, but they're clearly like interested in each other. And Mike, I think, goes out of his way to feminize her to like justify his attraction to her because he only identifies as like a, a you know a heterosexual man or heterosexual boy who's like attracted to girls, and so he's trying to like make it more palatable to be attracted to her. Now, Millette talks about this as well in the masculinity. I think Driscoll and Greeley talk about this as well in their article. Um, but like that it is the boys like constructing femininity for her in season one. And then what I notice is that as each season goes through, L or Eleven is encountering a different gender issue. So in season two, uh, when Max is introduced, she now has to navigate like being around another girl. Like she's not the only girl in the group and she has to navigate like how do you be friends with a girl who is a tomboy? Like their gender expressions and identities don't match up in the same way either, but they're also not matching up with the boys in the same way. So she's kind of navigating that um and then and in each season l has a different like aesthetic so you see her kind of working through her own idea of how she wants to express her gender and essentially she gets more feminine as the seasons progress she grows her hair out she dresses herself differently until we get to season four where she's reverted back to shaved head she wears this like flotation suit for most of the season Um, She's kind of thrown back to that original presentation she had. But because she's had more opportunities to develop, her identity doesn't fall apart when she shaves her head again. She doesn't kind of forget who she is. And I think it shows that although things like clothing and makeup and hair are the ornaments of gender, right? They're they're the um, like visual expressions we have of our gender to to telegraph them to other people the actual identity that we have of our gender is internal and is a sense of ourselves and it, and it must be developed through our in, intrapersonally like within ourselves but it's also developed interpersonally through through our interactions with other people of same and different genders we start to gauge ourselves and put ourselves like within the continuum of of what our our gender identity is and so 11 has gone through these different gendered issues of you know learning to dress herself navigating friendships with other girls and with boys navigating romantic relationships and she isn't an expert at it (laughs) um as season four shows us she is struggling with a new school she's been ripped out of her community and is isolated and is being bullied um but she is more stable in her identity so that when the ornaments or accoutrements of gender are stripped away from her she still has her her identity um and so i think 11 is a very interesting character to kind of demonstrate how identity is developed and can serve i think as a teaching tool for um people who maybe struggle with understanding how gender identity is like constructed and that it is a work in progress right that like season five we we don't know what we'll see but 11 could have a different aesthetic she could have a different idea of herself that will build upon 
the identity that she's been discovering throughout each season. And such a, a, a wonderful illustration, I think, of how gender can be fluid and can mean different things to different people because the boys have an idea of what femininity is, but come to accept what Elle's identity is or her idea of femininity. And like, it's clear that Elle's relationship with Max also influences her understanding of femininity and not in a way where she has to copy Max, but in a way where by building friends with other women or other female friends, she can be more assured of her own identity. So yeah, I think I think it's really good. And it's like, you know, if you're in a situation where you need to teach people about gender identity, I think Eleven could be a great example. It's not perfect, but um, it is there. So that's like, I think, the femi- the femininity side of gender. But of course, we have the masculinity. And I know I touched on the hyper-masculinity of, of geek culture earlier, but I think this this article by Millette had a fantastic quote that I want to share with you about um, boyhood. So Millette writes, as Judy Chu argues with reference to how boys, teachers, and parents bring ideas about boyhood to a classroom, we tend to notice and focus on those things that confirm our own assumptions and expectations. For example, when boys behave like, quote, boys. Whereas things that challenge our preconceived notions are easier for us to overlook or dismiss as exceptions. This is equally true of our generic engagement with popular media. And essentially what this article and this quote is is arguing is that in media and in the real world, boys are seen as not in and of themselves boys, but as potential men. And they are judged on what they might become when they grow into men rather than what they are at the moment. And Molette argues that that boys are not girls <laughs> and so they're excluded from like feminism or, or womanhood, um, but they're not men either. And so they're excluded from like masculinity or masculinity studies. And I know that's a little academic, um, but I think in our real world living of it, I think it explains a lot of why we have sayings like boys will be boys, where we excuse behaviors for boys with the assumption that they're going to shake it out when they get to be men and that they're in this like transitory period until they grow up and become adults. And that's not fair to boys. It's kind of robbing them of agency as they, you know, have a chunk of their life where they're they're kind of like in a waiting period. And it also reduces the way in which we allow boys to develop. This is apparent in in Stranger Things and and Millette uh, points this out as well. In that um, as each season goes by, as the boys age, there are less and less opportunities for them of of what they can be. And season four, it comes to like a glaring head in that they've entered high school. So they're moving into this new phase of adolescence where they are closer to being men than ever before. And their ability to engage with imagination, their ability to be intimate with each other in in ways has, has started to shrink. And we see Lucas has identified that being a geek or a nerd is not the way for him to go through high school. And he's trying so desperately to be popular and to connect with the basketball team. Whereas um, Mike and Dustin have like doubled down on D&D, Hellfire Club, like they're they're a part of their, um, they're still a part of the geek culture, but both of them have girlfriends and are relating to each other in different ways where they don't have as much time for each other and um, the things they used to like to do. And Will, although he has moved away 
is so desperate to go back to how it was. He wants them, and this is a theme for Will through all of the seasons. Will just wants to play D&D with his friends. He doesn't want anyone to have girlfriends. He doesn't want anyone to like be trying to do anything else. He just wants to play Dungeons and Dragons with his friends and like go back to how it was. And you see each of them is torn between boyhood and manhood. And that boyhood has become closed off, right? There is no more innocent gathering in the basement to play Dungeons and Dragons. One, because their city is full of monsters. <laughs> and, and two, because as they get older, there are things that take them away from that like purity of their time, the, the like innocence of their time. Yet manhood is not available to them yet. They are still in adolescence. They are treated as children by society, um, but they're starting to grow up and, and develop these new identities. It's just such a clear picture of, of how there isn't really a middle space for, for boys to develop. There's an assumption that you kind of just become a man, uh, that you don't get to work through your identity in the same way that Eleven does. And, and obviously, like, their identities do change over time and they are, like, working through their own things. But, like, Elle gets to... She, she has a lot of leeway. <laughs> she, she has a lot of space to experiment. And I think that that is the ideal, right? That that's what I would want for boys and girls alike is to have the, the space to experience their adolescence, to experience like this, this pausing before taking on adult roles. And that I think as girls develop into women, they take with them the openness for intimacy and connection that boys don't take with them into manhood. And I think that's really what these articles are, are getting at is that it is a different sensation or experience to develop from a girl to a woman versus from a boy to a man. I hope you understand that I'm talking more like abstractly, uh, you know, and I'm not trying to like exclude people who identify their gender as differently as not, you know, man or woman, but that kind of this like process of developing masculine traits versus feminine traits, I think is different in our society uh, because our society puts different pressures on it and assumes different things of masculine people versus feminine people. Yeah. And so it'll be interesting to see where season five goes as this issue develops and as the boys kind of like figure out where uh, where they're going and, and continue to age. And as we may see them kind of reunite uh, for the this final season, how how is coming together as a group after they've been split apart going to impact that development as well. Um, so yeah, I know that this part was a little more academic, a little more philo- uh, philosophical, but philosophy is part of psychology. <laughs> uh, it's the origin of psychology. So I think it is relevant. Um, and you know that gender is a passion of mine. So being able to talk about this this kind of theoretical gender study stuff is really really fun for me. So yeah, I hope you enjoyed this two-parter and that it's, uh, you got your fill of Stranger Things content. And as always, appreciate you listening all the way through to the end and I'll see you in the next one. Bye-bye.